Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church PCA in Collierville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, missioncollierville.org. So it was 1985, and a movie hit the cinemas that I had to go see. And I bet most of you have seen it. It's Rocky IV. Rocky Balboa versus Ivan the Soviet. And it was during the Cold War. It's coming to an end for the most part, but this was pitched as America versus the Soviet Union, good versus evil. And so my dad took me to the movie theater to see uh, this just, you know, this fantastic movie. And I'll never forget watching at the end, and I think the movie has been out long enough that I'm not giving away any plot lines here. Rocky wins. You know, he defeats the Soviet ultimate fighter. And he's in the middle of the ring, and they lift him up into the air, and they have the American flag draped over him, and he raises one arm into the air, one, you know, his boxing glove into the air. And as a, as a kid, I was pretty excited. This was pretty great. But there was a man in the movie theater that day. And he must have had a great love and appreciation for Rocky. And at that very moment, the fight is over. Rocky has won. He's raising his fist in victory. This man in the theater stands up a few rows in front of me. And he points his finger at the movie screen. And as loud as you can possibly be, he said, You're the man! You're the man! And just kept pointing his finger at Rocky. And several other men in the movie theater stood up. And someone else said, You're the man! And then people started clapping. A fictional movie. They started clapping and saying, you're the man. Rocky was a great fictional champion. It was a funny experience. Even as a child, I thought it was funny. Um, Even though I did sort of think, yeah, Rocky is the man. Like, he's the man. He's great. And we look at our text this morning, and this is not a fictional character. And he's not in the middle of the ring, and he doesn't look like a champion. He, in fact, he looks defeated. He looks broken. And what does Pilate say? Behold the man. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, which is sharper than a two-edged sword. Father, we are so grateful that you speak to us that your word opens our hearts to the mysteries that you have proclaimed, that your word changes us, that your word is good for us. It is a light to our path. And so this morning, Father, as we look at this gospel text, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us. Father, that your Holy Spirit would change us. And Father, that we would leave this place this morning with just a greater 
appreciation for our King and a greater love for you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. There are three things we're going to look at this morning. Jesus, the man, is also our king. He is our suffering servant. And he is the Passover lamb. Those are the three things that we're going to focus on. But before we do, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about to help you better understand the text, to better understand John 19, 1 through 16. The first thing that I want to mention is the flogging. You see Jesus come upon the scene in this text, and he has been beaten. And it's a terrible and difficult punishment that he is experienced. And scholars say that there are three kinds of floggings that the Roman government would would place upon non-Roman citizens. And one was light, but still very painful. Then there was a medium level, and then there was a third that often resulted in death, and that is the one that was given right before you were crucified. So one of the things that I think is helpful to understand in this passage is Jesus experienced two floggings. So in this text, he's flog- he receives the lighter flogging, and then we know from the other gospel text that he receives before the crucifixion the higher level flogging that often resulted in death. And we know that, that it was so strenuous and so difficult because Jesus cannot carry his cross to Golgotha. He has to have help. He can't do it himself. So what what Pilate has done in our text is he is wanting to resolve this problem very quickly. He wants to get Jesus out of his view. And so he administers the lighter flogging and he turns to the Jewish authorities and they have the tradition of allowing a criminal to go and he's saying, here he is, I've punished him, look at him, he's no threat, this is is not serious, let him go. Let him go. Then in verse 7 we also see something that is worth mentioning. It says... The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So what they are referring to here is Leviticus 24, 16. Let me read that for you. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So the Jewish authorities understand the teaching of Jesus. They realize that it's more than just a rabbinical teacher who is performing miracles and saying good things about the Word of God. They rightly grasp the reality that Jesus is proclaiming himself divine. They understand what Jesus is saying, that he is the Son of Man and the Son of God, and what that means. And so they are charging him with blasphemy. And so they're telling Pilate that according to our law, he has committed a serious crime, but because we are subjected to you, you have to carry out the criminal sentence. In other words, you are the one who needs to execute this blasphemer, this this rabbi who thinks 
that he really is the son of God, that he is divine, that he is from heaven. This has to stop. This has to end. He needs to be put to death. In verse 8, you see that Pilate, it says that Pilate has a fear of Jesus. Now that's a, that's a challenging verse to understand. And scholars have several different ideas about what is taking place in verse 8. Perhaps Pilate has heard stories about Jesus. Now remember, think back through the Gospels and all the people that were healed, the blind that were able to see, the deaf that were able to hear. Think about all that Jesus did in the course of his ministry. Surely, perhaps, in light of his following, that some of those stories had made their way to Pilate. Then Pilate meets the man. He meets the Nazarene. And he calls him back into his chamber and he questions him. And so there is a chance on some level that Pilate is beginning to grow aware of who Jesus might be from his pagan Gentile understanding. What, what does it mean that he is the Son of Man? What, what does it mean that he's claiming to be the Son of God? And it strikes fear into the heart of Pilate. In verse 11 in your text, it says that Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So this is a dual reference, perhaps, to Judas and to Caiaphas. But more than likely, Jesus is telling Pilate that you are doing what God ordained you to do because he is sovereign and he is in control of all things. The greater sin belongs to Caiaphas, who's a Jewish leader who knows the law, who knows the word and should know that I am the Son of Man and the Son of God, the Messiah that Israel is expecting to, to deliver them. So the greater burden, the greater guilt belongs to Caiaphas. I also think verse 12 is interesting and it's a reminder that things have just simply not changed from then to now. Pilate is trying to let Jesus off he doesn't see a great level of guilt in Jesus. He doesn't think that he is a criminal. And the Jews respond by saying, the Jewish leaders respond, the Jewish authorities say that if you let him go, you are letting go someone who claims to be a king, a king who opposes Caesar. So the Jewish authorities they begin to see that perhaps their argumentation is not working, and so they go political. And like a lot of political rulers down through the ages, Pilate wants to stay in this position. He sees it as uh, a place of power, a place of prominence, a place of prestige, a place of authority, and he wants to protect his own self-interest. 
He wants to protect himself. And so when they make this argument, Pilate quickly changes course. And what does he do? He moves forward with having Jesus crucified. And then the final thing that I want you to see in verse 14 is that it mentions that the sixth hour. So that, that's about noon. That's about noon on the week of Passover, Friday, the week of Passover, noon. Just to help you have a point of reference. So those are just some, just some footnotes that I wanted to, to give you to help you better understand what we are looking at today. But there's three things in particular I want us to talk about. And the first, that is, the first is Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king. So Pilate, Pilate presents him as a defeated figure. He's, he's mocking Jesus. They place the purple robe upon him. They place the crown of thorns on him. Jesus is a spectacle that is being made fun of. He is not the champion in the ring with his fist raised in victory. Jesus is beaten. He's hurting. He's bloodied. He's tired. From a worldly perspective, he looks defeated. But the irony of this is, as Jesus stands there with the crown of thorns and the purple robe, that he really is king. The Pilate doesn't understand what he's doing. He's saying, here is your king. But in reality, this is the king of the universe. This is Jesus and all his glory and all his power and all his might. And so we look at this text and we realize that as Jesus was king at that moment, remember, Jesus is obeying the will of the Father. He's willingly going to the cross. He is willingly going to Golgotha. Jesus is on a mission to save us. Jesus wants to redeem us from sin and death. At that very moment, he could have said, enough with this. He could have taken the crown of thorns off. He could have removed the mocking purple coat, and he could have called down the armies of heaven, and he could have destroyed the Roman army, and he could have done whatever he wanted to do as the one who upholds all things by his word. That is Jesus, that is our king. But he is obedient to the Father, and he knows that he has to go to the cross, and so he submits himself. What a glorious picture of King Jesus for us to see in this text. When we think about Jesus and we think about the fact that he's, a king, he's our king, it's a reminder to us that right now, at this very moment, he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. That's an expression which means he is sitting in authority. He has been crowned with power. That's where Jesus is. He's in the throne room of grace and he is ruling over all of creation. And he's watching over us. Just think about that. The figure that you see in this passage who looks defeated. Our king at this moment is watching over us. Scripture also tells us that he is praying for us. That our king is in the throne room of heaven, and he is praying over us. Hear Hebrews 
Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34 Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Our King, the one who is pictured in this text, is praying over us. He is interceding before the Father for us. That means He cares for us, that we are constantly on His mind, that He knows us. I'm glad I have a King. I'm glad I have a King who is willing to subject Himself to flogging, who is willing to subject Himself to humiliation, I'm so grateful that I have a king who right now is watching over me and is praying for me that I am on his mind that he is that I am on his mind that he is thinking of me. He is thinking of you. What else do we need to know about our king? Well, Jesus is singing over us. Isn't that a great thought? Zephaniah 3.17 says that our God sings over us. Well, our God is Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we understand the Old Testament text to say that Jesus, our King, who's sitting at the right hand of the Father, who is ruling over creation, is not only thinking about us, not only praying for us, but singing over us. That that encourages my heart. That He would not only think of me, but sing over me. So one of the things that you need to understand is that I am so very grateful for Reed. And I am so grateful that Reed is musical. And that he can sing. Because I have, I don't have many fears in life. But one of my fears is singing in front of people. It is a legitimate fear. I could speak all day long. I could speak to 10 people. I could speak to 100,000 people. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't faze me. But if you put me in front of that microphone, I will melt like a pool of butter. It's terrifying. But here's something that you need to know about me, and my children can they'll nod their head. In my home, in the privacy and security of my home, I will sing. I will sing in my truck. And I will sing loudly. And one of the things that I'd like to do is sing about my children. I run around the house and I make up songs about them and I sing about my children. Partly to embarrass them, partly because I love them and they fill my heart with joy. And the result is that I burst forth in song. And they are the goofiest and oddest songs that you've ever heard. But I sing over my children. Now stop and think about that. That your king is singing over you. Why? Because he's rejoicing over you. I mean, that's amazing. That's how much he loves you. I mean, I come into this place and I feel guilty for my sins. I feel guilty for what all I've done. I feel bad that I have not obeyed the Lord the following week like I should. But the reality is that in Jesus, I belong, to, I belong to God. 
I am a part of His family. And my Savior, my King, sings over me and rejoices over me. He loves me. He accepts me. He forgives me. I am His. What good news. What good news. He prays for us. He sings for us. And also remember, as our King, Revelation 1.5 says that His rule is love. Our King rules in love. He just loves us. He cares about us. He gave His life for us. And that is that's soul changing. That is soul changing. That He came from heaven and died for me. His rule is love. So Jesus is king. Jesus is also the suffering servant. Now, Isaiah was a great prophet in the Old Testament, and Israel has sinned against God. They failed to obey the covenant. They've been disobedient. They do not deserve the covenant blessings. Um, Exile is a terrible thing. They're away from the land of promise. It means that God is not pleased with, with how they worship Him, how they've disobeyed Him. And so Isaiah comes to them and he gives them a word of hope. Gives them a word of hope. He says, there is going to be a king in the line of David who is going to establish the kingdom and it will last forever. That in other words, God is going to end exile He is going to bring His people back together. He is going to establish a king on the throne who will rule forever. And all the difficulties that you face, all the struggles that you see, will be gone forever. And one of the things that you need to understand is that this king, this deliverer, is going to be a servant who will suffer. He's going to be a servant who will suffer. So let me read to you. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's important to hear. Let me read to you Isaiah 52, 13 through chapter 53, verse 3. Here's what the prophet has to say about the one who will save Israel and establish God's kingdom. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not." Here's the word of Isaiah talking about the suffering servant. And then in our text, we see Jesus, a servant, the truest servant, who has suffered greatly. He's endured life on this earth under the curse and the fall. 
Now he has experienced this flogging at the hands of the Roman government and he has experienced great humiliation. The king of the universe, the creator of all things, was stripped naked and beaten in front of other people. Think about that. Think about the humiliation. He is the suffering servant. He's the one who suffered for us. He's the one who suffered for Israel. And then notice this in our text. It, verse, the latter part of verse 14 and 15. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. That that is a paramount verse in the Gospels. Because remember a few weeks ago when we were looking at the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus come out of the river. He is the inaugurated king of Israel. He's leading his people on a new exile. He is the one true Israelite. Israel was unable to obey the covenant perfectly. Jesus comes without sin. He obeys the covenant perfectly. He is leading His people into the kingdom that He is going to establish. And when we come to this scene, the Jewish authorities say, we have no king. No king. We we do not have a king. No. No. Understand the importance of that. They are rejecting Jesus as the King, as the one true Israelite. And so, what John is telling us is because Jesus has obeyed the covenant perfectly, because of his life and his ministry, because he is the Son of Man and he is the Son of God, he is reconstituting Israel around himself in order to save God's people. That Jesus is going to save the Jewish people and he is going to save the Gentile people and that goes all the way back to the prophecies in the Old Testament. That God is going to remember His covenant to Adam to save His people. He is going to remember His covenant to save His people through Abraham. And they would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so those who don't believe, those who have been unfaithful to the covenant, say He is not our King. And so now the line has been drawn. Jesus is the new King. He is Israel and he is going to dispense faith to his people so that they become the Israel of God and that through him they receive the blessings of the covenant this is a profound verse here is the suffering servant that Isaiah looked forward to that would unite God's people and save them. He would not come high and mighty. He would come lowly. And through that, God's people would be lifted up. So, 
something to think about as a believer is that the path and the journey for Christians is one of difficulty and suffering and humiliation. That it's the opposite of the message of our culture, which is success and thriving and prosperity. That's not the Christian method. The the Christian message is one that in order to follow Jesus, you will often face difficulty and strife and stress and problems and struggles and issues. And so expect that in your journey until you see Him face to face. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. In His suffering, we connect with Jesus. In His struggles, in our struggles, they can only make sense in His struggles. You see, the suffering of Christ comes to us and it's the only thing that is going to make sense of what we face and what we deal with. We look to Jesus and we know that our Lord has walked on this earth and He has dealt with many difficult and challenging and hard things. But ultimately, He suffered for us. That on the cross... In an eternal moment, God placed our punishment and our sin and our guilt on Him and He made it right when He walked out of the tomb. And so I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what your problems are. I I do know on some level. But life is hard. And we're sinners. And the curse is real. And the fall happened. And we limp along. And if, and if you don't understand the suffering of Christ for our benefit, this life is unmanageable. And that's where you go. Whatever you're facing, you go to the cross and you look at Jesus, your King, through His sufferings. And that's what makes sense of this life in which we live, this Christian journey. Third point, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's our king, he's our suffering servant, he's our Passover lamb. Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, it was about the sixth hour, he said to the Jews, behold your king. John is making an important note here. He's wanting his audience to understand that this is the week of Passover, that Jesus has celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, and now he is like a lamb being led to the slaughter. He is, Jesus, the Passover lamb. That's Jesus. If you think back to Israel... And you think about the angel of death and God tells Moses to tell the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and to use the blood of the lamb to to smear across your doorpost. And if you do that, the angel of death will pass over you. 
In other words, my judgment against the sin of humanity, which will result in the death of the firstborn child, will not be placed on you because of the blood of the innocent animal. God is helping his people understand the significance of blood and what it means to life. Here, 1 Peter 1, 18-19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or or defect. That's Jesus. He is our Passover lamb. His blood protects us. His blood keeps us from judgment. It's not smeared over the doors of our home. It is smeared across our heart. When Avery was little, she was in the kitchen, and we had handed her a glass cup. And her bicycle, her little tricycle, was behind her. And she turned around with that glass cup, glass cup, and she tripped over her bicycle. She dropped the cup, the cup, and then she fell on top of it. And the glass missed her eye by a fraction, and it went all the way to her skull, and then it went straight up. And I heard Vicky scream, and I ran into the room, and you know, without going into great detail, it was it truly was gory. And I was doing everything I could to stop the bleeding, and eventually, our neighbor came over who was a nurse and helped, and we had to get her to the hospital. And as they were leaving with Avery, I'm standing at the sink, and I have her blood all over me, head to toe, all over my arms. And I remember standing at the sink, washing the blood off of my hands of my child and realizing that that blood is her life. That if we had not stopped the blood, she could have died. Now, it wasn't quite that serious. But if we had not been able to stop the blood, if the cut had been more significant, the blood would have drained. She would have died. This blood that is all over me represents her very life. And so think of that in terms of Jesus. Our Passover lamb, his blood is our life that it is protecting us from judgment and death he is the ultimate and final sacrifice his blood is the only thing that gives us hope and meaning in this life that's it period our Passover lamb Jesus Christ let's pray our Father and our God, we thank you that uh, you are great and worthy of praise. King Jesus, that 
you have suffered for us and that you are the lamb who was slain for us. We rejoice in such great news. We are thankful. We praise you. We honor you. We lift you up. God, thank you. Help us to give you the glory and praise that you deserve today, this week, and forever. It's in your Son's name, our King, our Servant, our Lamb, that we pray.